How many of you, this is your first time tonight? Let me see your hands. Okay. We have been, let me give about a three-minute introduction to get you up to speed on what we've been doing. We have been looking at the topic of overcoming overload, and the reason we have, and I have to tell you something interesting about this, because this morning I did a conference call with Multnomah Publishers, with whom I'm going to write a book on this whole topic of overcoming overload. Now, what is interesting about that conference call is that I was on the phone with uh, 40, 45 uh, of the sales team that is from all over the country. And what they do is uh, they're right now getting information in my book and a bunch of other books. I haven't written a word on this book. <laughs> and it will be out in a year. But, but they're having their sales meeting to find out what the book is about. And then they'll go out over the next few weeks and start selling it to these chains and Barnes and Noble and Parables and family and all these different outfits in advance. So they need to know what the book's about. And about three weeks ago, I got a call from Multnomah saying, is there any way you can fly up here to speak to this sales group and to the marketing guys? And I pull out my calendar and I'm trying to figure out how I can do it. Um, I mean, I'm looking at the schedule. I'm, and it, it was either, I, I couldn't do it today, obviously, because I was here tonight. But they wanted to know if I could be there Thursday afternoon, tomorrow afternoon. Problem with that, if I, got, it would, I would have to leave at 6 in the morning to get up there at 2, and then it's an hour from there to the office and to meet with them, do that tomorrow afternoon. But then I have to be in Jackson, Mississippi, Friday night at 7. And where they are in, in Oregon, if I took a 6 o'clock flight, if everything worked, I couldn't get to Jackson until 6.45. And then um, I just speak in the morning Saturday in, in Jackson and get on a plane, and I'm back here early afternoon. And then I speak here Sunday. And I'm looking at that, and I'm trying to figure out, all right, now how? And, and then, all of a sudden, it dawned on me that, you know, I don't think I want to do this. <laughs> and I don't think I should do it. Because if I do that, number one, it's crazy. Number two, this is how I got in trouble last year when I got so overloaded. And then I found this quote from Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, learn to say no. It will do you more good than learning to read Latin. <laughs> so I said no. Which is why I was on the phone. And, and see, I was getting all this pressure to come. But you know what? I, I can't do that. And it was fine, because they put me on a speakerphone with these guys. And I talked to them from my house, by phone, where it saved me a trip. And basically said what I needed to say. And I was telling them about the book. That we're all overworked, we're all overwhelmed, we're all overstressed, uh, we're, we're, we're completely saturated, we have room for nothing else in our lives, yet all these other demands crowd in and demand to be included when we're already saturated. So that's why we feel so overwhelmed. 
And that's why we tend to be emotionally overdrawn and spiritually overdrawn and relationally overdrawn. There is nothing left in the account to draw from. And that's a terrible way to live, but it is becoming the normal way to live in our culture. So what we are doing is we're taking a step back and we're looking at the Scriptures because God is our Creator. He has given us life. And in this book, He has told us how to live. But we have forgotten what's in here. And so we are kind of working our way through some foundational, fundamental principles which are designed to put uh, rest and some balance back into our lives. Therefore, the, the study on overcoming overload. And tonight, I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is, out of the 150 psalms, it, uh, it, it, it kicks off the, the, the whole book of psalms and, in a sense, is an introduction to all of the psalms. Um, I, I've been reading, uh, over the last couple of days, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and a lot of my comments tonight are going to come from him and on, uh, I found four sermons that he did on Psalm 1 39 years ago. Phenomenal. Phenomenal stuff. And uh, I can't help but be influenced by what I read, so I just, in fact, I'm just going to flat out plagiarize him. I just thought I'd go ahead and tell you about it before I, before I started. Not all of it, but a lot of it is uh, such great insights. And one of the things he starts off by saying is that one of the central issues of life for everybody. One of the central questions and one of the central needs is, how can I be happy? We all want to be happy. Uh, we, we want to, and when we say happy, we mean we want to have a measure of uh, joy. We want to be content. I looked up the word happy in the uh, New Century Dictionary, and it said, uh, one, I'm paraphrasing, but roughly it said, one who experiences favorable circumstances. Now, that's what the dictionary says. But we're going to see tonight that the Scriptures answer that a different way. Um, psalm 1 is a very simple psalm. And in a sense, the Bible is a very simple book with a very simple message. Uh, the Bible basically says that there are two ways to live. It doesn't matter where you pick up your Bible. As you're reading through it, basically you're going to get the message, there are two ways to live. You can live in relationship with God and in obedience to Him and live by His covenants or you can live your own way and the way of the world. Now, that basic story is told in different ways, in different books, but in essence, that's what it's all about. Um, which way are we going to live? Um, was it last Sunday? I mentioned the trail, or maybe it was the Sunday before. 
I know I mentioned it last year with the guys because we did a whole study on it. But Jesus talked about the fact that there are two trails or two paths. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Most people are on that road. Uh, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. Uh, we, we could pick it that we could pick up that and there it is, there's the two. You either you either do it God's way, you live God's way, or you live the way that's contrary to God. Psalm one, uh, in a nutshell, introduces the whole book of Psalms by laying that out for us. And it really is dealing with the question, how can I be happy? How can you be happy? I, I've, I've heard it said before, but the Bible isn't saying about happiness. The Bible does talk about happiness. The word here in Psalm 1, how blessed, if you look up that word blessed in a Hebrew lexicon, you're going to see, you're going to see a definition, blessed, comma, happy. That's what it means. If you go to the Sermon on the Mount, if you go to the Beatitudes, and Jesus said, blessed are, blessed are. That is uh, the Greek equivalent that can be translated blessed or happy. We'll see that in just a minute. So the scripture does talk about happiness because that's a legitimate question. Uh, how do we find happiness? Where do we find joy? Uh, where do we find a sense of satisfaction? And, and, and where does that come from? Let's read Psalm 1 and then we will work our way through this a little bit tonight. Um, how blessed or how happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. All right, That's one way to live. Here's the second way. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We all want to be happy. There are, there are two ways, basically. There are two options as we consider happiness, how to attain it, how to find it, um, it's a great thing. It's a great thing to be happy. I, I, I had a great compliment a while back, just a couple weeks ago. Um, one of our sons was talking to my wife. He was talking about different things and about plans for the future and what he's going to do and all that. And, and made the statement in the sense that, you know, I really want to be happy like you and dad. Now, I take that as a compliment, that he would think that. Um, that's a great thing. I am happy. Um, 
Happiness, we're going to see this in a little bit. Happiness is not based uh, on our circumstances in the Scripture. Because you know what? Our circumstances are never going to be on this earth exactly the way we'd like them to be. Would you agree with that? I can always use a little more cash. Can't you? I can always use a little less weight. I can always use a little more memory. Where am I? It's great to be here in Alabama. Now, I know where I am, but you know what I'm talking about? Um, we're never going to have it lined out just exactly the way that we would like it to be. If that's what it's going to take to make you happy, all your ducks in a row, perfectly set up, this area, this area, this area, this area, this area, this area of your life, completely synchronized in harmony with no flaws or glitches if that's what it takes to make you happy. If it takes perfect circumstances, you'll never experience it. Obviously, that's not going to happen in our lifetime on this earth. But happiness is possible. The Scripture holds that out to us. Now, there's a right way to find happiness, and there's a wrong way to find happiness. We're dealing with the whole issue of overcoming overload. One of the reasons that people get overloaded is that they're trying to find happiness the wrong way. It's a, it's a very subtle thing. Uh, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that one of the characteristics of our culture that stands out about our culture is the word more. We've got more of everything. We've got more options. We've got more, uh, we've got more phones. Can you believe all the phones you've got? Do you, anybody here remember a party line? <laughs> you remember picking up the phone to make a call, and Gertrude down the street is on the party line talking about the most inconsequential thing. You know, because you're listening to her. And you're waiting for her to get off. She won't get off. It was ridiculous. You could, the thought, the thought that you would have, you know, a cell phone, that you'd have a, pay, a beeper. I, mean, I don't know how many cell phones we've got. They're everywhere. It's, we've got more. We've got more of, we've got more of everything. Uh, the other word I think that characterizes our culture is better. We want better. Um, when, um, when we moved to Arkansas, we moved from California, and housing is very expensive in California. It's the land that's expensive. And so we had a very, very small backyard. I mean, small. Um, my backyard was, not, was probably three quarters of the size of this platform up here. So it didn't take me long to mow it. And the front yard was very small. Postage size, postage stamp size lot. We moved to Arkansas, houses were a lot cheaper. Uh, 
got a lot more, probably had an acre lot, half an acre, I don't know what it was, but that backyard was huge. I'll never forget the first time I mowed that backyard. And it was in July, I think, and it hadn't been mowed in a couple of months. It was high. Now, I had my little old snapper mower, the little tiny one. I wasn't going to go out and get a rider. I just wasn't going to do that. And Mary was gone with the kids somewhere, and it was a Saturday, and it took me, this is no exaggeration, because I, I was aware of it. I timed it. It took me eight hours, and that's no exaggeration, to cut the yard in the July heat. I'd take frequent breaks, sit on the deck, sip iced tea. Um, but when I got done with the front and backyard, I mean, it was just sculpted and edged and, you know what I mean? And that house had a, had a recent coat of white paint on it, the green grass. I mean, it just looked good. <laughs> and I mean, I was exhausted when I got done, but I felt pretty good. I, felt, I looked at that and I felt pretty content. Job well done. Walk in the house. They were still gone. I, I, I got some more iced tea. I sit down, I just grabbed a magazine and I start looking in this magazine. And there was an article in there about this couple in um, Des Moines that had put a new kitchen in. And it did before and after thing. And they had this kitchen, and it was for Mike, and it was stained, and uh, the cabinets are probably 30 years old, and just, you know, just typical kitchen. I mean, it was okay. But then you turn the page, and it was unbelievable. I mean, they had an island in the middle, and they had this beautiful slate stuff. I don't know what it was, but I mean, it was, it was, it was the good stuff. And they had, oh, they had a pantry that they had redone, and you'd push a button and the pantry would <laughs> rotate and bring it to you. And it was incredible. I'm sitting and I turn the page, and there's a couple in, I think it was Boise maybe, and they had uh, redone their deck. And the deck was okay, but you, you turn the page, this deck was unbelievable. Natural redwood, I mean, this thing had levels. It met the contour of the land. They had an amphitheater. The governor was inaugurated there. I mean, this was... <laughs> This was a deck. Amazing. Well, I'm out of tea, so I go into the kitchen to get some more tea, and I walk into my kitchen, and I just stop. And I kind of look around. <laughs> and I thought, I, I saw our formica. It was chipped, and I went to get some sweet out of the pantry, and it didn't <laughs> rotate. And I looked around, and I thought, I thought, you know, how do we live in a roach trap like this. <laughs> I looked out on the deck. I'd enjoyed the deck all afternoon. And I thought to myself, I've seen firewood in better shape. <laughs> now, what had happened to me? I mean, 10 minutes before, I was, I was content. I mean, I really was. I, I, I was enjoying our house. I really was. I was grateful for it. But 10 minutes later, where was my contentment? It was out the window. You know why? I was reading this magazine. It's called uh, Homes and Gardens. Now, that's not what it's called. It's called Better Homes and Gardens. <laughs> Better than whose? Better than mine. <laughs> Better kitchens than mine. Better decks than mine. The Bible talks about happiness. The Bible also talks about contentment. And do you know what robs contentment? Comparison. 
That's why it's not a good idea every Sunday after church to go looking at model homes. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? See, we're content until we see something better. And one of the reasons we get so overloaded is that we think better is the place of happiness. And so we get stressed out trying to accumulate better. There's nothing wrong with having a... You hear what I'm saying, don't you? Nothing wrong with a house or getting a new house or any of that stuff. But if you're doing it because you think that's going to make you happy, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Um, there are two roads as we ask about happiness and what is it that brings happiness and how does happiness come into my life. And right out of the blocks in, in Psalm 1, Happiness is spoken of in the negative. How not to do it. Why, why does it begin with the negative? I like what Lloyd-Jones said. He said because the Bible is the most realistic book in the world. Because we're living, we're living in a world. Um, I'll touch on that. In a, I'm going to touch on it now. But before I do the three negatives... We are in the world, and we talk about the world. But biblically, when the Bible speaks of the world, there are at least three different meanings to the word world. The first one is um, the earth, the created order. If you keep your finger in Psalm 1 and go to Psalm 24, you'll see what I'm talking about. In Psalm 24... David says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. Now, there is a second aspect to the world. So when we say the world, we can talk about the earth. We live in the earth. We live on this planet. We can travel on it, but that's our world. Secondly, when we use the term world, it speaks of the nations. In Psalm 24, he says the world and those who dwell in it. So it's just not a, a, a ball, it's just not a planet, but there are nations and there are peoples that are, uh, Jesus said, go into all the world, go into all the nations and preach the gospel. But there's a third aspect to the world. Um, when the Bible speaks of the world in this third way, it is speaking of the ways of fallen humanity. Alienated from God and his truth. I'm going to quote from David Wells here. Um, Wells talks about uh, that, it's hard for me to say this word, modernity, M-O-D-E-R-N-I-T-Y, modernity, if you prefer, is, is worldliness. Now, what does he mean by that? He says it refers to fallen humanity in mass, the collective expression of every society's refusal to bow before God, to receive his truth, his commandments, or to believe in Christ. Then he goes on and says this, this concept of world encompasses the cognitive or intellectual horizons of the fallen. 
their appetites, uh, the way that they order their life, their priorities, their behavior, what they really want, and what they will do to get it. It encompasses the set of social arrangements, the public context in which fallen life is lived out. It is the sole preoccupation of those who are fallen, those one-dimensional earth dwellers for whom there are no considerations in life more important than eating, drinking, possessing, and being married. The world is, uh, this world is fading, but that is no impediment to those who seek their fulfillment in the world rather than in God. So it is, as Flannery O'Connor has observed, that if you are a Christian, you have to cherish the world at the same time you struggle to endure it. Cherish uh, the first two senses of world that we defined while you struggle to endure, endure the third sense, the fallenness. So stay with me here, because this is good. He says, this world then is the way in which our collective life and society and the culture that goes with it is organized around the self in substitution for God. It is a life characterized by self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-satisfaction, self-aggrandizement, and self-promotion with a corresponding distaste for the self-denial proper to union with Christ. So when we speak of world in the third sense, there is a world view. There is a cultural view that is, quite frankly, anti-God and anti-truth. It is the predominant view of this world in which we live. That's why as believers, we're always going upstream and never downstream. With that in mind, that's why there's a negative in Psalm 1, verse 1, when it talks about trying to find happiness. How happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Uh, there are three things that we are told up front that we should not do. And when he is talking about the counsel of the wicked, the path of sinners, the seat of scoffers, he's talking about that worldview that is anti-God and anti-truth, and instead of God being at the center, self is at the center. I saw something tragic on TV the other night. The public station, one of them, I don't know which one it was. But, you know, they're, they show these clips of programs, and they cut to the guys trying to get you to send in your money and get the tapes or whatever they got. And there's this guy in there, Wayne Dyer. And they're all listening to him, and he's a psychologist or whatever he is. And he was talking, the clip I caught was, he was talking about, he says, I travel around, I'm always meeting people with terminal illness. I'm paraphrasing now. And he says, I have to encourage them because they're losing hope. I have to encourage them to look inside and find that place of hope. That was tragic. That was, that was all he could offer to those poor people, was to look, find that place inside where you'll find hope. What are you talking about? I mean, what is that? I mean, if you're it, there is no hope. You understand what I'm saying? 
That is, that is, that is tragic beyond belief that that's all that can be offered to people that have six months to live. That's the counsel of the wicked. That's the path of sinners. That's the seat of scoffers. There is a, a digression here of walk, of stand, of seat. We have to be careful. Um, here's what I need to say at this point. I need to go ahead and lay this out here. In previous weeks, we've talked about the fact that if you're in overload, number one, you need a sovereign. You need a king. All right? That was the first one. Number two, if you're in overload, last week we talked about the fact you need a Sabbath. Tonight, what this is all about is if you're in overload, you need to be, and when I introduced it a few weeks ago, I said you need to be out of your mind, out of your natural mind. And then Les said, you can keep going with S's, Steve, if you say you need a sovereign, you need a Sabbath, you need to be spiritually minded. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. As we walk through life and as we're trying to find happiness, we have got to be spiritually minded people. And when you're spiritually minded, and we'll define that in just a minute, those around you who don't know Christ will look at you and the way you're living your life, and they will say, you are out of your mind. Because the natural man does not discern the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2 says, for they're spiritually appraised, they're spiritually understood, and they're blind. So the first thing that we are told in seeking happiness is to not go the way of the world and the philosophers or the intellects or the experts in the world. That is not the place where we are to go to get our counsel on how to find happiness. Uh, jump down, if you would, to verse 4, because verse 4 refers to those that are referred to in verse 1. He calls them the wicked. He says, and he says the wicked are not so. They're, what do you mean they're not so? Well, they're not what's in verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, he describes those that are walking with God and those that love God. Uh, he calls them, he says they're like a great tree. Now, we'll get to that in a minute. But I want to jump to 4. When he says the wicked are not so, what he's saying is everything that the righteous are, everything that those people are who have Christ in the center of their lives, the wicked are not. See, it's two ways of living. It's two ways of approaching life. It's two ways of thinking. Uh, either self is on the throne or the sovereign is on the throne. He says, the wicked are not so, uh, for they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. How many of you were working in the wheat fields today? Getting the, I don't see anybody. Um, we're such a modern culture, a lot of us in this room, we don't even know what chaff is. Now, some of you that grew up on ranches or farms, you know what chaff is. When you were a kid and when you worked out there, and some of you do that in the summer, to, you go out to a place. And What is chaff? Chaff, it's interesting because he says the wicked are like chaff. Those who don't have God at the center of their lives and their existence and their thinking, 
They're chaff, right? What's chaff? Chaff is the, uh, is the husk. It's the outer layer that protects the kernel of wheat. Um, they separate the kernel from the chaff. Let's use another illustration we're probably more familiar with. Corn on the cob. You get, um, you get corn on the cob. We were in California. We had a big deal at the beach. And we're grilling everything. We take that corn on the cob. We soak it. I mean, I didn't do this. Mary did. She takes that corn on the cob, soaks it in water, and then puts it on the grill. And then when it's all done, we pull it off. And what we do is we pull that husk off that corn. The husk, and as we're at the beach, everyone's, you know, plowing into the food and it's great. You pull that husk off, which is the outer layer, and the husk, suddenly because we're at the beach and unless it's in a bag, we just put it in a pile right there and everybody's going after the sweet corn. It's wonderful. Uh, that's chaff. You buy a CD? You ever try to get that plastic off the CD? It can't be done. You buy a new CD, you're at your car, you're, you've almost been killed on the freeway trying to get that plastic off that CD. That's chaff. It's the outer layer. It's the outer covering which protects what's inside. Now here's the thing about chaff. See, there's a reason that God says, how happy is the man who does not. Because he's going to tell, why don't I want to uh, walk or stand or sit? You don't want to listen to their counsel because they're chaff. He says some things about chaff. He says they're like chaff which the wind drives away. Give me some characteristics of chaff. Number one, chaff has no beauty. None. It's just a hole. It's just an out. It's, it's, there's nothing to it. Those, you shuck that corn, that outer layer, just laying there. I mean, it's nothing, it has no beauty. Like a tree which has beauty and strength and symmetry, chaff doesn't have that. Here's something else about chaff. Chaff has no roots. Nothing to hold it in place. Nothing to hold it down. So the wind just blows it. Another thing about chaff. Chaff has no life. No life whatsoever. Nothing to it. It's just an outer shell. It's just a covering. Because it has no life, here's another thing about chaff. Chaff has no fruit. It bears nothing of value. It can't because it's dead. In Psalm 1, when, in verse 1, when, when, when he says the way to be happy is not to, he gives a negative, you don't want to walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Why? Because they're chaff. They have nothing to offer. Yet they think they do. They will prescribe. And, and this is what's so interesting to me. See, we live in this culture, and we are surrounded by chaff. You turn on the radio, you're getting chaff. You turn on TV, you're getting chaff. You go to the movies, you're getting chaff. It's everywhere. You can go to churches and get chaff. 
And what's interesting is they'll tell you how to be happy. See, they will tell you how to live your life. And it is so, we are so bombarded with the message of chaff, which is dead and rootless and has no life. We're so bombarded with it that it begins to break us down and unconsciously we begin to live our lives according to the influence and teaching of chaff. If we're not careful. It's so pervasive. It is so widespread. We hear it so constantly that we have got to guard our minds. Now, when we don't, when, when we just walk through life and absorb these messages subconsciously, what happens is we buy into the message which contains lies. We've talked about this before. A bunch of lies. One of them is you can have it all. If you believe that, you're going to get overloaded. Another lie is you can do it all. You're going to get overloaded if you believe that. Uh, number three, I've got to watch the clock here. Number three, you, can, uh, you deserve it all. See, we're constantly in a hundred different ways, in more than a hundred different ways a day, we're hit with that. We're hit with it. That's not the way to live. you got to understand something. And you say, you're kind of worked up about this. Well, I kind of am. Because we're getting saturated with it, and it's, it's, we don't mean to, but it's getting into our minds, and it's affecting our thinking, and the way that we live, and it's so predominant, and it's so subtle, that we start unconsciously living the way of chaff, and we don't even realize it. That's not how we want to live. There's another option. And fact of the matter is, that way, they're always saying, you know, this will bring you, this will bring you, all this happiness. You, you will find no happiness. None. None. It doesn't exist. It's not there. Why is it that so many people that have it all, I mean, we could go illustration of illustration of illustration of illustration of the wealthiest people who have ever walked the face of the earth. How many of them have taken their own lives? I mean, you know, you, you, could take, you could take four hours and go on the Internet. You could find ten illustrations of that with no problem. Because, see, that doesn't bring happiness. Um, let's go to verse 2. Let's go to the positive. In verse 2, in Psalm 1, we see the other, the other way and the other method. Um, and as you're going to verse 2, I, I want to point something else out again. This is really important. Happiness is attainable. It is. Because if you look carefully at verse 1, it says, how happy is the man. It's attainable. You can actually have happiness in this life. Now, as we said, it's not going to be happiness where everything's perfect, but everything doesn't have to be perfect to be happy. Um, 
You know, Jesus said the same thing as being, as, as being said in Psalm 1. Um, go over to Matthew 5, if you would. In the Sermon on the Mount, which was the Sermon on the Mountain, by the way, it was up there, you go to Israel and you get up there around Galilee, uh, north side, you get up to Capernaum, and you're riding around that bus. I mean, it was one of those mounts that Jesus took them and he preached a sermon. You could see how they get all get on that hill. It was a natural amphitheater. Beautiful. When you see the word blessed there, blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3, blessed are those blessed, it can be translated happy. Now notice verse 6. Blessed are those, and see before you, blessed are those, blessed are the gentle, blessed are, see, happiness is attainable. Blessed or happy are those, now catch this, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Here's something about happiness. If your goal is to be happy and you spend your life pursuing happiness, you will never find it. The way to find happiness is not to pursue happiness. The way to find happiness is to pursue righteousness. Did you see that? In verse 6, happy are those who hunger and thirst, not for happiness, but for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. And then look at chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 33. Very familiar verse. Jesus said, but seek first his kingdom and his, what? Righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. If you seek happiness, you're not going to find it. If you seek righteousness, happiness will be the byproduct that will come your way. We should also say this. Happiness is not based on the experiencing the right circumstances. Happiness is doing what's right in your circumstances. That's where happiness comes from. Now, the world won't tell you that. The world says you're in tough circumstances, do whatever you need to get out. You're in a tough marriage, get out. And a lot of Christians buy into that. Let me tell you something. You're in a tough marriage, things are going, if you leave, God can't fix it. Can he? Because you've left. But is it possible to be in a difficult situation and the circumstances aren't what you would wish they would be right now? And is it possible to seek righteousness and to be a godly man and to be a godly woman and to seek the things of God? Yes. Yes. There's a... That's just how you do it. Because you know what? Circumstances can change. Circumstances you think will never change can change. That's God's business. That's what God does. God takes people that are in circumstances that they think will never change and that are utterly hopeless, and you know what he does? It's all the way through the Bible. You see him changing. You say, well, he hasn't changed his mind. Well, we talked about Joseph on Sunday. It depends on when you talk to Joseph. A year into the dungeon, his circumstances hadn't been changed. But, but you see, all the way through those difficult circumstances, Potiphar's wife is trying to get him 
to jump in the sack, and he won't do it because he is seeking not his own happiness. He is seeking the righteousness of God. Did Joseph wind up with happiness? I'd say he did because God honored him. Now, in verse 2 of Psalm 1, which is where we are, or it's where we're supposed to be. <laughs> we are over in Matthew. But in Psalm 1, in verse 2, we've got a contrast. We've already mentioned it. It's a contrast, not between a tree and a tree, but a contrast between the tree and the chaff. Verse 2. But his delight, whose delight? The blessed man. The happy man, back in verse 1, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So instead of listening to wrong counsel and wrong information and allowing that to filter into his mind, in contrast to that, his delight is in the law of the Lord, is in the word of God. And Flip over to Psalm 112 real quick. Getting a workout here tonight, aren't we? This just goes right along with it. It says in Psalm 112, How blessed or how happy is the man who fears the Lord, catch this, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants. Who? His kids. They do. I remember my great-grandmother, um, who was um, an invalid in her 90s, when I was just a little boy, three, four years old. And I can remember going in that bedroom and, um, and seeing her, and she always had her Bible open, and she was a, a godly woman. And she had um, 13 children, and I think when she died... If I get this right, 11 were still alive. Um, and I want to say there were six boys and five girls. I think that's right. When she died, she had prayed for those boys every day of her life. She prayed, she would fasted for them. She's in her 90s. Those boys, those boys are in their 60s and 70s. And I'll tell you something, they were hell raisers. They just were. When she died, none of them were walking with Christ. None of them had submitted their lives to Christ. None of them. You know what was interesting? After she died, one by one by one by one. God, just reel them in. One by, and I'm going to tell you something. They didn't get saved. They got saved. You know what I mean? I mean, you're talking good Pentecostal boys. I mean, when they prayed, they prayed loud. So I was raised. I mean, we, I talk about family reunions the other day. We always have a service, the family reunion. I mean, it was loud. Everybody else in the park was kind of looking because they were praising the Lord and they were not ashamed. You see? They came. She didn't see it, but they came. So don't necessarily buy into the fact of where your kid is now. I don't care if they're 35 or 13 or... 63 is where they're going to wind up. You don't know that. That's God's deal. 
pray for them. Pray that God would override their will. That's what he did with you. That's what he did with me. So uh, uh, Romans 9 says, so that it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God be merciful and just override it. Just get in there and grab them and bring them to yourself. Because they can't come any other way. I got kind of revved up on that. Okay? Now, the guy in Psalm 112, how blessed the man who fears the Lord who, delight, who greatly delights in His commandments. See, you know what that's telling me? Is that I'm going to take my cues as I walk through life off the truth of God's Word. Off the commandments of God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus didn't say, if you love me, you'll hear them and ignore them. One of the commandments is, you shall not commit adultery. That should not be an option in your life. Doesn't even exist. Is that where you are? It's where you need to be in your heart. I mean, you're a one woman kind of man. Job said in Job 31 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes, I will not gaze upon a young woman in lust. It contracted. Let's go back to Psalm 1. Because you see, now, see, see you're talking about how you think. You're talking about, because you see, let me tell you something, you commit adultery, you're not going to be happy. I don't care what they say. You're not going to be happy. But you think you will be, and you think you get out of that situation. And, and Because the way of the transgressor is hard. You're going to live with guilt. You know why you're going to live with guilt? Because you're guilty. And the Spirit of God's not going to let up on you. You're not going to ever sleep well at night. Because you're going to have people praying for you. I pray for people all the time. God, don't let them sleep. I'm dead serious. Don't let them sleep. Convict them, Lord, by, by your Spirit. Don't give them rest. You ever pray like that for somebody? I mean, get the hound of heaven on them. kind of revved up tonight. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. Go back to Psalm 1. So his delight, see? His delight is in the law of the Lord. Do you delight in the Bible? Do you delight in the things of God? You ever just get thrilled over something in the Scriptures? I mean, it just thrills you. And it says this, and in his law, he meditates day and night. You got the word of God. It's always kind of working. It's always kind of. Um, it's, it's like chewing tobacco. I usually talk to men. Every once in a while, I'll see Walt Garrison, because uh, he, he lives out not too far from where we live. And um, after he finished playing with the Cowboys, he did this uh, commercial for, uh, what was it, Skoll or Copenhagen or somebody, I don't know. This is for true tobacco pleasure. You just take a pinch between your cheek and gum. 
And you do that 15, 20 years and you'll get cancer. They don't mention that, but, um, but that's what will happen. But anyway, you put that pinch between your cheek and gum, you just let it sit there. And it's just there. And you go through the day, you're just kind of, you're just kind of chewing on it. So what, you know what, that's meditation. You, you just, you ever take, you ever just take a scripture, put it on a card, put it in your car, put it at your office? You ever just take a scripture? And you know what you're doing when you take a scripture and you got it somewhere you see it? You're just taking a pinch. Between your cheek and gum. And you got other things, you're on the phone, but you know what, you just kind of got it right there on your cheek. And then sometime during that day, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be tempted to sin. That's when you spit. You spit the word of God into the temptation. I'm not sure we're going to do this next week, are we? But see, that's meditation. Isn't that what a cow does? A cow takes that grass, he's just chewing it. He just chews it. Puts it down, brings it back, you chew it. All day long, you're chewing on the Word of God. You gotta, it's, it's not, you're not doing Bible study all day long. You've got life. But you know what? The Word of God's in your mind. Not the counsel of the wicked, not the path of sinners, not the seed of scoffers. The truth of God is in your mind. It's there. You can call on it. If you delight in the Word of God, if you meditate on the Word, Here's what you're going to be like. Number one, you're not going to be like chaff. You're going to be like a tree. A tree planted by streams. Of, I'm going to tell you, we could go two hours on this verse. Notice the characteristics of this tree. Um, number one, you're planted. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water. You ever, you, ever, uh, you ever plant a tree? What do you have to do to plant a tree? Well, you've got to take the ground and you've got to break up the ground, first of all. See, a lot of us, you know, this is how we came to Christ. What happened is we were kind of had smooth sailing, we're moving around, and all of a sudden, God put this divine spade into the circumstance of our life and he started disrupting our lives. He started moving dirt around. He started moving earth around. Maybe in a spade, maybe in your life, he brought in a backhoe. And he just started digging your life and, and putting you in a hole. See, so you got to dig that ground up, and, and then he plants us. You see? We're planted. Because you're a tree and you're planted by streams of water, you've got roots. Chaff doesn't have roots. Your roots go down deep into the streams of living water. Something else about a tree. A tree like this, don't you, I mean, don't you love a magnificent tree? I mean, there are some gorgeous trees. In Maui, there is a banyan tree that, that sits in Lahaina, and the breadth of that tree and I'm not exaggerating. Some of you have seen it. That tree, if the trunk was right here in this middle aisle, its branches would spread at least to that aisle over there and maybe further. You've seen it, Taylor? You know what I'm talking about? And then over to that aisle 
it, I, I mean, it's, it's magnificent. Magnificent. You see, a tree like that, here's what a tree like that has. It has strength. A, a tree like that has beauty. You look at a great tree, it has symmetry. Chaff can never do that. Thinking like the world can never do that. See, we're talking about you need to be spiritual-minded. Folks, let me say this to you. A spiritual-minded person is a person who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates in His law day and night. That's what it means to be spiritual-minded. As you live your life, well, here's something else. If you're like that tree, so if you... If you do that with the Word of God and you're spiritually minded, you're going to bear fruit. And here's something else about you. Your leaf is never going to wither. You're going to be an evergreen. And you know what's interesting about evergreens? Evergreens don't bear fruit. But you will. Because of your roots and the living water and because you're, you're, you're spiritually minded. There's going to be beauty. There's going to be symmetry. There's going to be balance in your life that comes from thinking the thoughts of God instead of the thoughts of the world system. Am I getting through here? You getting me? So, this is going to make a difference because the Word of God is central in your life and because you're spiritually minded. This is going to make a difference in how you live your life. It's going to make a, a difference in the decisions of your life. It's going to make a difference in the uh, priorities of your life and other people who you work with, other people in your family who don't know Christ, they're going to look at you and say, you're out of your mind. Because yes, you are. Out of your natural mind, you're spiritually minded. And you see, as you live your life, you're meditating, you're reading, you're chewing on the Word of God. And as you are scoping out your life and thinking about life and the decisions, you don't look to the counsel of the ungodly. You look to the counsel of this book. See, being spiritually minded is, is to delight in the Word of God and refuse to be influenced by the chaff. I think that's what it means to be spiritually minded. Let me say that again. To be spiritually minded is to delight in the Word of God and refuse to be influenced by the chaff. When you realize the chaff is creeping in, you reject it because it's dead. There's no fruit. There's no life. I can't find happiness that way. Well, let's give some illustrations as we bring us to a conclusion. So, let's say you're single. What should a spiritually minded single person look like? Well, the world says if you're single, you ought to sleep around. Big, big hot show about sex in the city. It's about all these young women in New York City that, quite frankly, are sluts. That's what it's about. I read a review on it the other day. That's not what I said. That's what the reviewer said. And believe me, he's not rooted in the Word of God. He was appalled by it. See, the world says, you want to be happy? You sleep around. You're a single. Uh, if you're a spiritually minded single, you know about 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God and that no man transgress or defraud his brother in the matter. You see, because you're spiritually minded, and there are going to be people that look at you and say, you're single, and you're a virgin, and you're 28. There'll be people in your family that'll mock you. God will favor you. That's what it means to be spiritually minded. Uh, most of us start out single. Everyone I know started out single. <laughs> I started out single. And you're thinking, maybe one day I'll get married. Well, what kind of partner are you going to look for? The world says you just look for somebody that's amazing what they say, the foolishness, the foolishness of what they say. It's all out, it's all external, it's all physical. First of all, the Bible says if you're spiritually minded, you'll only marry a believer, you'll only marry a Christian. And so if you're single, the thing that makes sense to me was, if you're only going to marry a Christian, then why would you date a non-Christian? I mean, I'm just, I took a logic course one time. That seems logical to me. So why should I go out with someone that is not committed? To, you say, well, I want to win the Christ. That's not your job. That's the Spirit of God's job. You'll get entangled emotionally. And let me tell you something. You want to be miserable? The most miserable people I've ever met in my life are people that violated what God said in Scripture about believers marrying non-believers. I've never seen people more miserable in my life than people that violated that. So if you're spiritually minded, you only marry a Christian. All right, then you get married. Then let me ask you something. How are you going to live your life? Maybe you graduate from college. Mary and I, we got married. Uh, she graduated from, I graduated from college. I was in seminary. She was there getting a master's in church music. I met her there. And then um, we got married, and then we start thinking about right, how, how are we going to live our life? And um, I was finishing seminary, so she went to work, and uh, you know I got done, and then um, we took this little tiny church, and uh, it was my first church, and I was a pastor, and we didn't have a secretary, so she was a secretary. And then she gets pregnant. And see, then it gets real interesting. Because then, then what are you going to do? See, because then when you get married, and you have a baby, and see, here I'm going to zero in on some young families. And when I start talking about this at marriage conferences, it gets real quiet. People a few minutes before were laughing and clapping and having a great time. They get, they get stunned because I'm going to start meddling. Not me. I'm just going to take them to the Word of God. Because see, the, see, here's the thing. We have been so influenced by this world and by the thinking of the world, we don't even realize it. And we start setting up our families according to what the world says rather than what God says, and we're not spiritually minded. And then we wonder why we get so much trouble in our families. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, where are you building according to His blueprint or the world's blueprint? So you're going to have a baby? Let me ask you something. Then what are you going to do? You're both working. you got two incomes. And see, you're bringing in two incomes, you get comfortable living up here. So then the baby comes along, and now you've got the big-time decision. 
And for most people, it's not a decision at all. For, for a wife, I'm going back to work full time. Now see, I'm step, I, I'm, this, this is going to get interesting. But see, all I'm, I'm and folks, I want to say this. I want to be real clear here. I'm not saying what you should do. I'm saying you should look at the Word of God. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not even the junior Holy Spirit. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I'm not going to back off from this, and I'll tell you why. I have seen too many Christian families that are struggling and have children that are emotionally neglected because mom and dad have bought into the thinking of the world rather than making their decisions through the grid of Scripture. Every family needs two things. Number one, it needs provision. Does that make sense to you? That's food, clothing, shelter. Here's the second thing. Every family needs care. Care. Does that make sense to you? That's nurture. You know, you know what it is. Provision and care. And I want to make a statement here that 40 years ago, no one would have blinked at. It's very controversial today. Here's my statement. I believe it was God's plan in Scripture that the man be the primary provider. I believe in Scripture it's God's plan that the wife be the primary caregiver. You got any proof for that, Steve? I think I do. How about Genesis? Right in Europe. Even when sin came into the world, they were cursed in their area of primary responsibility. Adam was cursed in his area of provision. Cursed will be the ground because of you, with thorns and thistles. He worked before sin, but now he was going to have to deal with, with the effects of sin. To the woman, she was cursed in her area of primary responsibility. It says, greatly shall your pain increase in your career. Greatly show your pain increase in what? Yeah. Childbearing. Which is what? It's called nurture. See, Mary and I, we had to make a decision. We're going to have kids. And see, the decision that every couple has to make, because here's, what ha and here's where the world gets into our thinking. We get trapped in the thinking we have to have better to be happy. A better income, a better house, you got to have a new Suburban. You, let me tell you something. You don't have to have that. Do you? But we get conned in the thinking that we do. See, every family needs, thing. It needs provision and it needs care. The Industrial Revolution historically, for the first time, took men out of the home. Everybody worked. Men worked in the home. When the Industrial Revolution came along, if a guy was a, a smith, a blacksmith, or a coppersmith, his home was attached to a shop, either above it, behind it, or to the side of it. So when a guy went to work, he went to the next room. The Industrial Revolution came along, factories were built, and for the first time in history, men had to leave the home to go to work and provide. You read the article in the World Book Encyclopedia, and it goes all through this, and it says, and serious social evils developed. Why? Because men were taken out of the home for the first time in history. Then in 1960-something, Betty Friedan wrote this book, The Feminine Mystique. This is the 20th anniversary edition. It says on the front, the most important book of the 20th century, Betty Friedan is to women what Martin Luther King was to blacks. I would say Betty Friedan is to mothers what Adolf Hitler was to Jews. 
I believe that with all my heart. She killed mothering in America. I don't back off of that. Read the book. A woman's only significant if she's out in the workplace. Let me ask you something. You've got a little kid? I'm going to take five more minutes because I'm really revved up now. <laughs> and and, and, and I, I want to say this. When I talk on this, I, sometimes I have people really get upset and I get some letters and people are really angry at me. And, and you know what? That's okay. I, I'm just asking you to think about how you're living your life. That's all I'm asking you to do. I, I'm just asking you to, to, to look at the decisions you're making. And we've got to do this in every area of our lives. And put it up against the Word of God and say, Lord Jesus, how do you want us to live? How do you want us to structure our family? You see? That's all I'm talking about, folks. Go read 1 Timothy uh, 5. That if anyone doesn't provide for his own household, he's worse than an unbeliever. He's worse than a pagan. He's talking to the men. Then go on, and what is it? Read verse 14. Because then it talks about that the young widows who've lost their husbands, he wants them to get married again, and, and you can see what he wants. Them, and one of the things he wants them to do, it, it says is keep house, and it kind of freaks us out. But the word there is, uh, is it's oikodespotane. It, it means the ruler. It means the governor. That home has to be overseen. That home has to be structured. There are children there. They need to be nurtured. They need to be cared for. They need to be instructed. Uh, Betty Friedan came. See, the men had already been taken out of the home because of the Industrial Revolution. She came along, started the feminist revolution. This one guy says, this book is the wisest, sanest, soundest, most understanding and compassionate treatment of American woman's greatest problem. That's the counsel of the wicked. It took women out of the home. Listen, when you got a man out of the home in provision and a woman out of the home in provision, then let me ask you something. Who's caring for the children? You know why I say this stuff? Because your kids can't say it to you. And I know you love them. I know you love Christ. You love your kids. You die for your kids. You love the Word of God or you wouldn't be here. I'm just trying to show you how pervasive the world system is and has even gotten into the church. We won't touch this stuff with a 10-foot pole. But it's killing our families. You don't need that. You say, if we, we might have to downsize. Downsize. That's okay, because better isn't the place of happiness. Seventeen Magazine said this, she's the ultimate woman, fit, trim, lively, independent, career-minded. She's alone, no husband, no boyfriend, no children clinging to her. That's the ultimate. G.K. Chesterton, who had great wisdom, said this, can anyone tell me two things more vital to the race than these? What man shall marry what woman, and what shall be the first things taught to their first child? He goes on and says, The natural operation of life surrounded her with very young children who require to be taught not so much anything, but everything. Babies need not to be taught a trade, but to be introduced to a world. 
To put the matter shortly, a woman is generally shut up in a house with a human being at the time when he asks all the questions that there are and some that there aren't. Okay, this is brilliant. Our race has thought it worthwhile to cast this burden on women in order to keep common sense in the world. Somebody's going to teach your babies. But when people begin to talk about this domestic duty is not merely difficult, but trivial and dreary, I give up the question. I cannot with the utmost energy of imagination conceive what they mean. If drudgery only means dreadfully hard work, I admit the woman drudges in the home, as a man might drudge at his work. But if it means that the hard work is more heavy because it's unimportant or colorless and of small import to the soul, I say give it up. How can it be an important career to tell other people's children about mathematics and a small career to tell one's own children about the universe. A woman's function is laborious, not because it is minute, but because it is gigantic. I will pity Mrs. Jones for the hugeness of her task. I will never pity her for its smallness. A mother is a vessel that God uses to pour himself into children. A mother is a theologian, an educator, a psychologist, a counselor, an encourager, an embracer, a forgiver, a communicator, a listener, an explainer, a disciplinarian, a visionary, and a disciple. Just like Jesus. You know, Jesus, wherever he went, they went with him. He went to the lake, they were with him. Went to the store, they went with him. Went to the town, they went with him. And they were always asking him stupid questions. <laughs> Isn't that a mom? See, here's the thing that we don't understand and where we bought into a lie. The thing about moms is they have the ability to change the world right inside their own homes. Somebody's going to raise your kids. Somebody's going to care for your kids. See, we think I need a better house, I need a better home, I need a better car. No, you don't. Maybe that's why you're so overloaded. You don't need, you don't need things. You just need relationships. You need quality of life. Theodore Roosevelt said this, it is the tasks connected with the home that are the fundamental task of humanity. After all, we can get along for the time being with an inferior quality of success in other lines, political or business, or of any such kind. Because if there are failings in such matters, we can make them good in the next generation. But if the mother does not do her duty, there will either be no next generation or a next generation that is worse than none at all. We, we had to sort this out when we were raising our kids. There, we've only got one left at home as a senior in high school. I'm going to tell you, it was tough. We had to make some decisions. And it was difficult, and we had friends who made different decisions, and that's between, that's between us and the Lord. But at, and we could take a hundred different examples about how you're going to live your life if you're going to live it according to the counsel of the world, or what God says. One day, um, Mary and I um, will stand before the Lord. And, and I know the scripture indicates we'll stand individually, but wouldn't it be something if we stood together before him? And you know what we want to hear Jesus say? Because I'll tell you, we had some lean years. Because... We decided that our kids ought to be discipled by their mother. 
She did the majority of caring. I did the majority of providing. And we had times where we had to juggle, and she did some part-time stuff with the church, and I'd stay home on my day off with the kids. See, I'm not saying guys don't care, and I'm not saying women can't provide. I'm just saying we had to work that out biblically. And we went three years with one car, and it was really a pain, and all that kind of, you see? But see, we're before the Lord. You know what we want to hear Jesus say? We want to hear Jesus say, Steve, Mary. Good job. Good job. Mark Twain said he could live for 60 days on a good compliment. If we see Jesus do this, that's a compliment. It'll carry us all the way through eternity. In every area of my life, I've got to be spiritually minded to have balance and beauty. And we desperately want it. So, Father, we bow before you. Lord, you know I've kind of been dreading this all day. But, um, Father, I always get in trouble when, I'm, when, when I back off. On what things um, are in the Word that are uncomfortable. And, Lord, we just need to be brokers of truth. And we lay it out. And I pray for every couple. Lord, there are other areas. There are a hundred. There are a thousand different areas we could have made application to in our lives. But Lord, this is one that's so common. And undoubtedly, there's some discomfort. But I, I pray, Lord, I don't know why you put this so heavily on my heart tonight. But I would pray, Father, that as couples, that we might talk with one another and say, how are we doing in provision and care? Are we top-heavy in one area and light in another? And what, what adjustments, Lord, do we need to make? Lord, we just want your favor. We just want your blessing. That's all we want in our lives. And Lord, the amazing thing is, we live in a world that says nobody should sacrifice, but you say that if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. Give us a, a spirit of being willing to serve and do what's not best for us, but what's best for others. That's so hard, but Lord, when we get there, we find that's the place of happiness. That's the place of balance. That's the place of beauty. Thank you for your truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name.